This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Daniel LaGrange, uh, and I am doing the second of two lectures on eating disorders, Sarah Bakalu, that the uh, previous one uh, last Wednesday was. Um, my talk will focus primarily on uh, recent advances in the treatment of adolescents with eating disorders. Um, <clears throat> before moving on, I just would like to acknowledge uh, my sources of funding um, in this slide, uh, but more particularly uh, all the folks that I collaborate with, uh, because in any uh, line of work, and especially in the work that we do, it's really important to have a number of collaborators uh, to make this task possible, uh, and especially my colleagues at the University of Chicago. Um, I've been there for 17 years, and this is my first month at UCSF. So uh, you'll hear some references to, to the University of Chicago, but then there are several other collaborators as well. Uh, in this presentation, I'd like to cover four areas. The first um, would be revisiting prevalence and mortality, and I know that Dr. Bakalu spoke a little bit to that as well, and perhaps uh, quite a bit. I'm doing so just to set the stage for why we need to work much harder in terms of figuring out how to treat adolescents with eating disorders. So that will be my sort of prelude to discussing uh, what we know about inpatient and outpatient treatment for teenagers with eating disorders. And when I say eating disorders, I'm just going to focus the presentation on anorexia and bulimia nervosa. Uh, and then summarize a, a couple of discussion points, and hopefully we will have enough time to uh, talk about uh, the questions or concerns you may have, uh, and I believe that you have access to these slides, which means that you would have this reading list uh, as well. Uh, if you want a more specific uh, parent-focused reading list, depending on your own interest in the subject, I'm happy to uh, make that available too. So let's start out by uh, giving you a, a brief introduction and perhaps a revisit to the prevalence and mortality of eating disorders in adolescents. So let's look at the, the prevalence. Uh, and when do these disorders typically occur? Uh, mostly in the teenage years. Uh, very few people with anorexia nervosa develop the disorder after teenage years. So the mean age of onset is typically in mid-teens, uh, around 14. Uh, females outnumber males by quite a margin in anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, more so in AN, where it is about 9 to 1, and BN, perhaps 7 to, th to 3 or 8 to 2. What are the determinants of these disorders? I really do not know. Uh, and if anyone knows, then please raise your hand and let us know, because this is an area uh, that we have been struggling with for decades, uh, well, ever since this, th these disorders have been first described, uh, and we are somewhat, somewhat closer to understanding why these disorders develop, but it's really uh, not known in any to any degree of specificity. But we do know that there's a gene-environment interaction effect. We know that eating disorders are heritable, uh, so they do run in families. 
Um, but have we been able to pinpoint a gene or a constellation of genes? The answer is no. We also do know that if you are born with a specific genetic predisposition and you are in a specific environment that trigger those genes, you're probably more likely to develop an eating disorder. There are millions of young people with probably with uh, the gene for an eating disorder, the genes for an eating disorder, but um, not everyone who diets uh, develop anorexia. So there must be something much more complicated to this picture that uh, bring about the development of this disorder. Likewise, the neurobiology of eating disorders are poorly understood. This is another area of inquiry that is fairly recent in our field. There are only a handful of, of labs across the United States and elsewhere that specifically focus their attention on understanding what the neurobiological underpinnings of these disorders are. So we don't know much about that either. We do know that certain personality traits and perhaps some psychiatric comorbidity would be predisposing factors to eating disorders. Um, people who are particularly fastidious or obsessive-compulsive or highly anxious might be more uh, predisposed to developing an eating disorder. But as I say that, uh, everyone in this room would prefer that the pilot that flies your plane is highly fastidious and particular and obsessive about checking every feature and detail of the, the pre-flight check. Uh, so that characteristic or trait in and by itself obviously uh, doesn't lead to an eating disorder. Likewise, um, many people with OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder don't go on to develop an eating disorder, yet many people with eating disorders have comorbid or coexisting OCD. So the two do go hand in hand, but they are not so closely tied that if you have OCD, you will develop AN, or if you have AN, you will develop uh, OCD. There are several medical conditions, mostly in the arena of, of GI and endocrine disorders, that seem to be uh, precursors to developing an eating disorder. As you can imagine, if you have a, a disorder of, of the GI tract that requires a, a very particular diet, excluding very specific foods, uh, overemphasizing others and keeping careful check of how you go about doing so, if you also have a genetic predisposition to an eating disorder and you develop this GI disorder and you are now told and coached how to eat and how not to eat, that probably could also uh, be uh, a road into developing an eating disorder. So those are the areas where, where we don't know much about. We're trying to make some headway into understanding these different aspects that could contribute to an eating disorder. The area in which we have made some significant progress, though, is in debunking the theories on parenting styles. Um, psychiatry has a very sad history uh, in the 50s and 60s and, and beyond, 1950s and 60s, of blaming parents and particularly blaming mothers for uh, any type of psychiatric disorder. They are the um, schizophrenogenic mothers, uh, autistogenic mothers, and anorexogenic mothers. Uh, so for a very long time, unfortunately, uh, our colleagues have focused their attention on what's wrong in the families that they produce these kids with uh, a psychiatric disorder, in this instance, an eating disorder. Fortunately, none of that seems to be the case, uh, and that the only certainty that we have in terms of the determinants of eating disorders is that parents do not cause their child's eating disorder. 
Um, so that's uh, the only good news we have in terms of understanding where these disorders come from. So with that in mind, in terms of a very brief summary as to where this comes from, or how little we understand of where this comes from, I should rather say, let's look at the prevalence of these disorders among adolescents in the United States. And this is a very recent study that we published looking at uh, the lifetime prevalence of eating disorders among a very large sample of adolescents. This is a population-based in-person survey uh, uh, where the CIDI interview was used uh, plus a parent questionnaire to establish lifetime prevalence estimates for eating disorders. So what it means is that 10,000-plus adolescents uh, were, were uh, selected at random, according to a very sophisticated, that I don't know anything about, uh, system of making sure you have a representation of teenagers between the ages of 13 and 18 across the United States. They were then approached and interviewed, uh, and not just looking at an eating disorder, but a whole long list of medical and psychiatric diagnoses. Uh, so... It's very helpful to have a survey like this when it's done in person as opposed to um, someone fills out a questionnaire and sends it in. Uh, and if you use this methodology, you can be fairly certain uh, that the, uh, the diagnoses that you have established are to be trusted. And if you look at uh, these 10,000 adolescents, uh, it shows that the lifetime prevalence of an eating disorder, any kind of an of an, of an eating disorder, not obesity, uh, on the spectrum of AN and BN um, would, would be about 7.7 or almost 8% of an adolescent in the United States would have an eating disorder. Um, that's a ra rather high number, and I'll put that in perspective in the next couple of slides in terms of how does that compare to other psychiatric disorders and how does that compare to other common medical diagnoses. So just keep that in mind. Um, if you look at anorexia nervosa, uh, it's, it's probably uh, in keeping with what we would have expected. It has the lowest prevalence of all eating disorders, uh, uh, less than 5%. Uh, if you look at bulimia nervosa, about 1.5% of all adolescents would have di been diagnosed with an eating disorder during the ages of 13 to 18. Binge eating disorder is about 2.5% of all adolescents substandromal anorexia nervosa, and we don't have to go into detail what that necessarily means. Suffice to say that the diagnostic criteria for anorexia nervosa is rather strict. So there are many teenagers who uh, are uh, meeting almost all criteria, but not quite. Um, and they would be classified uh, as substandromal AN. Uh, just so you know, clinically, when someone like that presents to our services, uh, we wouldn't make an, a, a different. Uh, uh, we wouldn't put forward a different treatment plan just because they have subsyndromal anorexia nervosa. And just to, to put that in perspective, the cut point for anorexia nervosa, according to the DSM-4, is that you have to be at or below 85% of your expected body weight. If someone is at 86% but meets all other criteria for this disorder, they don't have anorexia. They have subsyndromal anorexia. So as you can hear, that, that doesn't really make clinical sense. You don't treat someone differently just because they are 86% versus someone who's 84%. They're both terribly unwell. The same for bulimia nervosa. In DSM-4, you have to present with two objective uh, binge eating episodes per week 
and two, compensatory, inappropriate compensatory behavior such as self-induced vomiting. Uh, that's bulimia nervosa. But someone could be, having, could be having one binge episode per week, but induced vomiting 28 times. That would be subsyndromal bulimia nervosa. Again, to us in the clinic, that it's indistinguishable. We wouldn't say, well, this one person has subsyndromal B and therefore is not as unwell as this other person who binges and purges twice per week. So the, these subsyndromal diagnoses just refers to people who don't meet the full criteria but are nevertheless clinically very unwell. And the point with this slide is that we often think of eating disorders as very rare disorders. Um, and if you think of a prevalence, lifetime prevalence of almost 8%, that really changes the picture. And I'll put that in perspective, uh, as I said, just in a couple more slides. But let me keep with this study for just a while longer. Um, if you have an eating disorder, it looks like the chances of you having another coexisting psychiatric disorder is pretty high. Uh, and if you look at the, this, the slide here, uh, especially for bulimia nervosa, which is the red, and binge eating disorder, which is the green, if you have either of those two eating disorders, about a third of those patients also have a mood disorder. Uh, not as high for anxiety or for substance abuse, but other behavioral disorders like ADHD and conduct disorder and so on, uh, about 25% of patients with a diagnosis of BN also will meet criteria for a behavioral disorder. It's most alarming when we look at the lifetime suicidality by eating disorder subtype, which means that if you have an eating disorder as an adolescent, what's the chances that you've also presented with suicidality? Uh, and what this slide shows here is that no matter what eating disorder diagnosis you've had or have, uh, everyone in those eating disorder groups have presented with suicidality far more often than a teenager without an eating disorder, which is this, uh, the last column here, no eating disorder. So this is percentage. So about 31% of patients with anorexia nervosa also presented suicide ideation. Uh, a small number had suicide plans, and about 8% had suicide attempts. These are all significantly lower than a teenager without an eating disorder. But the most alarming uh, statistics sit in the bulimia nervosa column. If an adolescent has a diagnosis of bulimia nervosa, more than 50% also report suicidal ideation. A quarter had a suicide plan, and more than a third had attempted suicide. So those are uh, numbers that should alarm anyone, that the close association between bulimia nervosa, depression, and suicidality. It doesn't end there. If you have a lifetime history of uh, a diagnosis of an eating disorder, let's look at the lifetime service used by eating disorder subtype. And what we're looking at here is, so if you are an adolescent and you have an eating disorder, uh, do you go and seek help, or does someone go and help you seek help? And what this slide shows is that, uh, indeed, uh, a good 60% plus uh, of uh, patients do seek out mental health services, uh, irrespective of the diagnosis, of, of what eating disorder diagnosis they have. However, those services have little to do with their eating disorder, because if you look at the bottom in red, uh, 
So 68% of adolescents with an eating disorder do end up in mental health services, but only about a quarter or more uh, went there for a treat- treatment for their eating disorder. So they went there because they were depressed or anxious, or they said they were depressed and anxious, and they didn't get treatment for their eating disorder. Likewise, 60% or 61% of adolescents with bulimia nervosa do end up in mental health services, but no more than 21% actually get treatment for their eating disorder. So these are very prevalent disorders with severe medical and psychiatric morbidities, yet very few people end up getting treatment for their eating disorder. But how does this compare to other adolescent psychiatric disorders? I gave you an idea of a lifetime prevalence of 7.7%. What is the lifetime prevalence of other psychiatric disorders or diagnoses that we often hear about and that we know are very common? Major depressive episodes, 9.3% is the lifetime prevalence. 8% eating disorders, 9% mood disorders, so not so rare. Um, We get a lot of of, uh, press about ADHD, uh, and a lot of kids, unfortunately, present with ADHD. That's about 12% versus 8% with the diagnosis of an eating disorder. So again, very much in the same ballpark. So what is the incidence of eating disorders compared to other medical diagnoses. Is if we keep hearing that eating disorders are such rare disorders, how, how does that compare to other medical diagnoses? And if you look at the peak onset, uh, which is ages 15 to 16 years of age, the incidence of eating disorders is five times that of type 1 diabetes, 10 times that of inflammatory bowel disease, so again, these disorders are not as rare as we have thought them to be. So that's the prevalence of eating disorders. Let me move on to mortality studies because I try to show you that they, are, they occur very frequently. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how very serious these disorders are. Anorexia nervosa has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disorder. Uh, but that's anorexia nervosa. What about bulimia nervosa and, and binge eating disorder? So by way of background, let me just tell you a little bit about the mortality studies that have been conducted and why uh, it's so difficult to conduct them in the United States. Um, Most of the research up to now have focused on mortality in anorexia nervosa. So we know little about uh, bulimia nervosa and uh, binge eating disorder. Uh, And these few studies are quite modest in, in size. They've used different sampling techniques. They define diagnoses differently, and their follow-up time periods vary as well. So it's very difficult to compare the findings. Um, but nevertheless, uh, they all seem to agree that the crude mortality rate for any eating disorder is around 6 to 8%. Keep that number, number in mind because as, as I did with prevalence, I'm going to try and put this in perspective. Uh, how does that compare to other illnesses that, that would immediately raise an alarm bell if someone gives uh, your child that diagnosis? What's hampered um, us in the United States doing uh, large-scale mortality studies is the fact that um, in our healthcare system, we don't have access to data in the same way that uh, some of these larger national registries that are available in countries with uh, nationalized healthcare, such as Canada or Northern Europe, and in particular Scandinavia, present with a have access to 
thousands of cases over 20, 30, 40 years. And I'll show you one study uh, next that comes from such a large data set. So this was a study that was conducted uh, in Norway or Sweden. I forget for a moment now. Um, but it's looking at um, the observed, uh, in actual, the number that you count of people who've died versus the number that you would expect to die uh, in over time given uh, gender uh, and, uh, and age. Uh, and this is looking at uh, more than 600 women who've been hospitalized for anorexia nervosa and then followed for 20 plus years. Uh, and what the study shows is that there's a six-fold increase in mortality for women with anorexia nervosa compared to the general population. So what you see here is that this is the time of first admission. And the red dot is uh, one year post-admission, one to two, two years, three to four, up to 20 years. This is the number of deaths that you would expect to occur naturally due to age. Uh, and the blue are the number of observed deaths. So um, when you expect this many, about 20 died instead. When you expect about one or two, after one or two years of hospitalization, 44 of those patients uh, died. And so it clearly demonstrates this very, this very high rate, or six-fold increase in mortality in women who've had one hospitalization for an eating disorder. Back to the United States, and this is a very recent study from a group in Minneapolis, Scott Crow and his colleagues, looking at the standardized mortality ratio after outpatient care uh, in about 2,000 females with any eating disorder. Now, remember one or two slides earlier, I said that anorexia nervosa has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disorder. Until now, we did, we do not, or we did not know what that looks like for bulimia nervosa or for binge eating disorder because the data uh, are not available until we saw this study. So what Scott Crow and his colleagues showed was that, uh, as expected, the standardized mortality ratio for all causes of death for anorexia nervosa was elevated significantly. But so was the case for bulimia nervosa as well as for binge eating disorder. And if we look at the cause of death as sui by suicide, it's elevated for anorexia nervosa significantly, but also for bulimia nervosa and for binge eating disorder. So what the slide shows is that whereas previously we thought anorexia nervosa is the deadliest of the eating disorders, and I think what this slide shows us, or the study shows, is that all eating disorders are lethal. Uh, and there's no distinction to be made between AN, BN, and binge eating disorder. So I said the crude mortality rate for any eating disorder is between 6 and 8%. How does that compare to mortality rates in other pediatric illnesses? And this slide was picked for me by a colleague of mine who's a pediatrician and said, these are three diagnoses that would have us set up because the mortality rates are so high. Please, at every talk or every opportunity you have, put the slide in there. So I've been very obedient ever since. And so I'm, I'm putting the slide there because it demonstrates that anorexia nervosa is at, an eating disorder is as lethal as at least the following three pediatric Diagnosis: Premature birth at 28 weeks gestation has an 8% mortality rate. Mild to moderate congenital heart disease has a 5 to 10% mortality rate. 
and acute lymphocytic leukemia has a 10% mortality rate. What was it, the number for anorak for eating disorders? 6 to 8%. So very much, again, in the same ballpark. So let me summarize this rather lengthy introduction to the treatment of adolescents with eating disorders. I've tried to demonstrate that eating disorders are highly prevalent among adolescents, and we should not think of these disorders as rare. That, as we, I clearly demonstrated, they, they, these disorders are associated with serious medical complications, uh, other psychiatric disorders, role impairment, and in particular, suicidality. And that the elevated mortality risk for all eating disorders, both in terms of all-cause and suicide standardized mortality ratios are significantly elevated across the eating disorders. Um, and clearly, we need to know much more about how to treat these, these disorders. And because we know so little about uh, the treatment, there are several unmet treatment needs, and that places these disorders clearly and fairly, fairly into uh, the public health uh, con arena of concern. We do not know enough about how to treat these severely ill adolescents, uh, but let me tell you uh, a little bit at least about what we do know. And that's the second part and the main part of this presentation is looking at the treatment of adolescents with eating disorders. Let me give you a little bit of a, a historical background to, or at least put it in context of how much or how little we know about treatment. Um, this is the treatment studies for adults with anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. And the size of these boxes, uh, I have attempted to try and give you an indication of the number of studies that are available. So you'll see the, 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 the box for adolescents will be much smaller. But for adults, there's been a number of studies for bulimia nervosa. More than 100 randomized controlled clinical trials have been published. So that's a fair number uh, of studies that are available. Um, for anorexia nervosa, no more than 10 or so have been published. So that's a very small number. And for those of you who do not know, anorexia nervosa was first described in 1873. So more than a century and a quarter or more, uh, we've been able to conduct 10. By we, I mean the eating disorders field. Only 10 randomized controlled trials for adults with anorexia nervosa, an illness that's uh, more than a century old. Adolescence's story is unfortunately even more grim, I should say. As you can see, there are far fewer studies in total compared to adults. Uh, and there have only been nine published RCTs for adolescents with uh, anorexia nervosa and a piddly two for bulimia nervosa. And I'm going to focus the next uh, part of the presentation then on what have we learned from those 11 studies for adolescents. But I guess I'm jumping ahead now. Uh, let me use another set of slides to show you how little uh, we have done until recently. And fortunately, we, we kind of on a, uh, a good accelerating track to learn more about the treatment. Uh, in 1984, a century after anorexia nervosa was first described, there were zero randomized controlled studies for adolescents with uh, an eating disorder or with, with anorexia nervosa. A decade on, uh, about two studies have seen the light, uh, and another decade on, it's about five studies now, and fortunately by the end of this decade, there will be about 12 
or so published a randomized controlled trial. So even though we've been asleep at the wheel for a century, uh, we've been fairly busy over the last couple of decades. So we are making progress. Uh, another way of putting this is uh, across all these studies, about 1,500 adolescents worldwide have participated in randomized controlled studies for uh, an eating disorder. Uh, putting that in comparison, more than double the amount of adolescents have participated in randomized controlled studies for pediatric anxiety and depression. So again, we are very far behind our colleagues in other areas of mental health, but at least, as I said, or showed in the previous slides, we are beginning to catch up. But what is the evidence that we have for, from this uh, about a dozen studies in adolescents? Uh, I think it's safe to say that there are about three predominant models for the treatment of adolescents with eating disorders. The first is inpatient treatment for those patients who are medically unstable. So their vital sign instability, that means that their heart rates may be uh, below 52 beats per minute, they may be orthostatic, dehydrated, hypothermic, the typical medical side effects of someone who is severely emaciated. And that's a medical hospitalization. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. The second leg or strand of the dominant models of treatment would be inpatient treatment for weight restoration. So the difference between the two is that number one talks about admitting an adolescent to a pediatric floor, such as the program we have here at UCSF, and number two is referring to having your child admitted to a psychiatric facility that specializes in the treatment of eating disorders. Those are two very different hospitalizations, very different timelines, very, to some extent very different staffing that would uh, uh, follow your child through the admission process. And then the third piece would be outpatient psychosocial treatment with appropriate medical follow-up. And I'll talk about each of these three in the context of what is the data that we have to support the effectiveness of these three treatments. So let's turn to the first one being medical stabilization when someone presents as uh, unstable uh, at assessment. So what this means is that someone has to be refed at a certain tempo to bring about medical stability, which usually means a rapid weight number of, of kilograms or pounds should be put on in a short period of time to bring the heart rate back to normal, to uh, uh, reduce or eliminate orthostasis, and so on. How is that done? Um, and for those of you interested, there are three studies that were published in the Journal of Adolescent Health, I think it's September or August of 2013, Three studies unrelated to each other, um, but all three of them um, challenging conventional wisdom or the modus operandi. And the modus operandi in most inpatient, medical inpatient facilities uh, is to, in terms of calories, to start low and advance slow, meaning that these patients are so underweight, we have to be very careful how much they are being fed, and how rapidly we are increasing the caloric value of their intake during this inpatient stay. So up until recently, the, the modus operandi is to start low, meaning around 1,200 calories per day on admission, and then advance slow, meaning about 
200 calories being added to that intake every second day. Uh, so remember those numbers because what these three studies are showing us, because they challenge conventional wisdom, is that, hang on, that may be causing an underfeeding syndrome, meaning that you don't really help these kids to get better very fast. In fact, you're prolonging hospitalization. So let me put this uh, in perspective. The study that, that was done here by Andrew Garber and colleagues here at UCSF uh, looked at patients who were on this old regimen of inpatient refeeding to bring about medical stabilization. And so patients were started on average at about 1,200 calories on admission, and then that was advanced at a rate of about 200 every second day. And so what happens here, if you look at, uh, at mean weight gain, if I can find the cursor, there you go. Uh, this is, these are days of admission, and this is what happens um, with weight. Uh, and this is one kilogram, uh, I hope so. Uh, let's forget what the y-axis is for now. Uh, but what it tells us, though, is that if you start someone at that low caloric intake, for the first four days of admission, weight actually goes down and is significantly lower than the admission weight. And it's only at day five or six that weights begin to uh, go above the admission weight uh, and it's only on day eight or nine that that weight is significantly higher than the admission weight for the first time. So the adolescent spends a whole week in the hospital on a refeeding program before his or her weight is significantly higher than the admission weight for the first time. So as you can expect, it would take a lot longer then to bring about medical stability in someone who's being fed at this regimen. The primary driving force for this regimen, start low, advance slow, uh, is the legitimate concern for the development of the uh, overfeeding uh, uh, syndrome, which means that um, someone gets fed uh, calories at too fast a tempo, the body cannot accommodate that and develops very serious medical complications and can die as a consequence. Uh, and the refeeding syndrome can and have caused premature death. Uh, so this, is, had, this had our colleagues be very concerned about uh, how best to conduct this refeeding process uh, in an inpatient setting. Um, and because of the concern for refeeding syndrome, the conventional wisdom has been this rather slow approach to uh, inpatient uh, treatment. But these three studies that I've highlighted, uh, Andrew Garbus here at UCSF and, and uh, Neville Goldner at Stanford and Debbie Katzman at SickKids in Toronto, thought, well, we don't really see refeeding syndrome all that frequently, so maybe we have been too cautious causing the underfeeding syndrome in reference to the fact that for a good week someone's weight is on average lower than the admission weight. And so what Andrew Garber and her, and her colleagues here did was to look at uh, the patients who were in the start low, advance slow regimen, uh, and how does that compare to those who were then started on the new regimen of start high, advance fast. So the old one was about 1,200 calories on admission, advanced by about 200 calories every second day versus start high advanced fast, which is the red line, uh, that's starting at around 1,800 calories on admission and advanced by about 200 every day. 
Um, and as you can see, in that start high, advance fast group, um, there was no weight loss at the time of admission compared to the conventional group, if you can put it that way. In fact, by day four, the weight was already significantly higher than it was on admission. Um, and it stays so for the remainder of the period of admission. The other important point is that patients in the start high advanced fast group uh, are discharged on average quite a bit sooner than those who are in the old regimen. And we've come to learn that if you can bring about medical stability in a short period of time, our patients are probably better off than if you keep them in the hospital much longer than they need to be in great part because they can get back to their families and our job is to teach their families how to manage uh, these uh, disorders. Uh, and this is just to compare the increase in calories across these two regimens. As you can see, there's a significant difference between um, the, the two groups, uh, the high-calorie group consistently receiving uh, more energy than the ones in the more traditional approach. So what can we conclude from how best to support and help an adolescent and their families when their child is medically unstable and require admission. That perhaps the conventional wisdom of start low, advance slow should be revisited. And to that effect, actually, uh, Andrew Garber has um, uh, applied for funding from the NIH to do such a study here at UCSF in collaboration with Stanford. Uh, and the second point is that these recent studies all show that start high, advance fast might be more beneficial in terms of weight gain. The tempo is a lot quicker. Uh, patients become medically stable in a briefer period of time, uh, and they spend a lot less days in the hospital compared to those in the old regimen. So that's what we know about inpatient treatment for someone who's medically unstable. And so the take-home message is that you should expect an adolescent to spend about two weeks in the hospital uh, to achieve medical stability before he or she should be discharged to the outpatient team. What about the second strand of this three-legged treatment uh, um, regime? And that is inpatient weight restoration, which, as I said, is different from medical s stabilization. This is when someone has to go to an inpatient psychiatric facility, and there are plenty of them all over the country, um, and they vary in... Uh, in all shapes and sizes, no pun intended, uh, but in terms of residential facilities and day patient programs and intensive uh, outpatient programs and so on. Um, the primary purpose of these programs uh, will be to admit the adolescent for a fairly lengthy period of time to bring about weight restoration. So these are typically medically stable adolescents who are not gaining weight in outpatient treatment, and typically also patients with high rates of coexisting psychiatric disorders or high rates of comorbidity. So someone who has an eating disorder and is also clinically depressed, or someone who has an eating disorder and also has a substance use disorder, and so on. Um, but let's forget for the moment at least those patients with those complications and just focus on the merits of a psychiatric facility to bring about weight restoration and how does that compare to outpatient and other treatments. There are three published RCTs that tell us a little bit about that. 
The first one, uh, which until now is probably still the largest or the second largest RCT that have been published, uh, was conducted in Liverpool in the United Kingdom by Simon Gowers, Charles Psychiatrist, and his colleagues. Uh, and patients, uh, 167 of them, were randomly allocated to either CAMS, which is Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. I think I had my H&M the wrong way around. Uh, which means that if your child has uh, a mental health difficulty, they go to the local CAMS uh, that's funded by the local government. Uh, and so you depend a little bit on the special, uh, uh, the specialty or the uh, the uh, special services that can be uh, provided by the expertise that's uh, akin to any particular CAM service. Uh, in this instance, uh, they would be receiving outpatient uh, treatment, mostly individual treatment, some family involvement, and so on. The specialized outpatient treatment was cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, so that's a manualized a treatment with a fair amount of, of research evidence to back it up, versus inpatient psychiatric refeeding. I talked a little bit about what that means. Um, so how? So what the, what the investigators tried to test here was: so often we hear that the first line treatment for an adolescent with anorexia should be a lengthy inpatient stay. So let's put that to the test and see what it tells us. And what these investigators show with this study was that at one year follow-up, um, and these three lines uh, denote the, one of these three treatments. Uh, red is the, the CAMS service or the Community Mental Health Provider Services. The, uh, the yellow is the uh, Specialized Outpatient Treatment, Cognitive Behavior Psychotherapy. And the black line refers to the inpatient psychiatric admission. Uh, and this is a good outcome, good response to treatment, intermediate outcome, meaning that there's some significant improvements but not uh, uh, recovery or remission, and poor outcome means there was no treatment response. And although these lines look a little bit all over the place, uh, statistically there was no difference uh, in terms of which group you went to. Um, and the same was true for the two-year follow-up. It shows that regardless of the treatment that you were assigned to, about 30% had a good outcome. Um, regardless of the treatment that you were assigned to, about 40% on average made some significant improvements. But again, regardless of the treatment, uh, about a quarter was still very unwell, which led these uh, researchers, and they're all clinicians, to conclude that first-line inpatient psychiatric treatment does not provide advantages over outpatient management. Putting aside that the outcomes were not that terrific, uh, to go inpatient did not mean you're going to have an advantage over your fellow patients who spend their time uh, in outpatient care. Uh, but moreover, that outpatient treatment failures do very poorly on transfer to inpatient facilities. And there's this revolving door that often develops in eating disorder. Someone goes to an inpatient uh, facility, they gain some weight, they go back home, they lose the weight, and they have to go back in again at, at, at some uh, point in the near future. So these findings are very illuminating, albeit rather distressing to confirm what, we, the, what many of us have thought, that there's no added advantage to having uh, uh, a patient with anorexia nervosa spend that much time in a psychiatric facility. On average, one study. So let's be cautious, too, and not uh, run away with ourselves here.
The second study is one that uh, we published uh, fairly recently, in fact, that Impress should read 2014, uh, which was conducted at the Children's Hospital Westmead in Sydney, Australia. Uh, and 82 adolescents who were randomized to one of two groups. And this is a very interesting study. I'm not saying it because I'm a co-author. In fact, all the credit should go to uh, Sloan Madden, the first author, uh, and his team in Australia for this very important study that tested the fact that if patients, if adolescents with anorexia nervosa are medically unstable, how much time should they spend in the hospital? Again, testing the hypothesis that the first study I just showed you also looked at. And so 41 patients were randomized to the medical stabilization group and 41 to weight restoration. What does that mean? So 82 patients with anorexia nervosa, all teenagers were medically unstable. Then they were hospitalized uh, and they were medically stabilized. Upon medical stabilization in this first group, they were then discharged to outpatient family-based treatment. So that regimen that I told you about earlier, on about average two or three weeks, uh, you're typically stable, and then you go on to outpatient treatment where your parents are doing the job that the nurses would have done if you stayed in the hospital. The weight restoration group uh, were all medically unstable adolescents. If they were allocated or randomized to that group, then they were in the hospital, became medically stable, and unlike the first group, who were then discharged to their families, they stayed in the hospital for ongoing refeeding and weight restoration up to about 90% of expected body weight. They were then discharged to their families. So obviously, they spend a lot more time in the hospital before they get the same treatment as the first group who were just medically stabilized and then typically would leave the hospital within two or three weeks and then spend the bulk of their treatment with their families. Um, and the hypothesis was that there would be no difference in outcome, whether you were in group one or group two. Um, and that, in fact, was the case, that there was no difference in outcome at 12-month follow-up between the two groups. There was, however, a significant difference in the number of days you spent in hospital, as you could expect, because the one group stayed in the hospital for weight restoration, whereas the other group would let go very quickly. So what are the benefits of, of such a study then, um, you may ask? Um, so what if the outcomes are similar? Um, it's a big deal. Um, it is a big deal uh, because it means that you don't have to spend weeks in the hospital to be refed. That if you're medically stable, your parents can do the job just as well as the nurses can. And there are, of course, vast economic benefits to that scenario, but the more important benefit is that the adolescent is in her or his natural environment, and the parents are developing the skills to manage a very uh, complicated uh, and confusing disorder. Um, so that's, that's, that's a big deal. Uh, but secondly, significant cost savings will result from a brief hospitalization, and that makes perfect economic sense as well. Uh, if we can avoid uh, the time in the hospital, if we can avoid the high bills that parents are belabored with on top of having to deal with this illness, then, of course, we're helping them in that way as well. The third study, and this is the largest study uh, to be published to date, was uh, uh, published in Lancet, uh, just recently from a German group that randomized 172 adolescents to inpatient treatment or day patient uh, 
treatment. And this study was trying to show that the two are no different. And in fact, that is exactly what they demonstrated, was that the re reducing the need for hospitalization was equivalent across the two. And so what it tells us that, again, challenging the conventional wisdom that everyone should spend a lot of time as inpatients. This is perhaps not an outpatient alternative, but at least it's a less intensive uh, option than inpatient treatment. It's day patient treatment. And so what these uh, investigators showed us that was that day patient treatment was not inferior to the inpatient treatment with respect to the primary outcome, which was weight, uh, at 12-month follow-up. And that day patient treatment after short inpatient care in adolescence with non-chronic anorexinosis seems no less effective than having to spend all that time in the, in, in the hospital for weight restoration. Uh, and this was maintained at one year post the admission uh, time. So that's, those are three very important studies that put into question the conventional wisdom of an adolescent with anorexia nervosa should, by definition, spend a lot of time in the hospital. I guess both one and two, the first strand, medical stabilization and psychiatric admission, I think in both those groups, uh, the conventional wisdom of lengthy admissions uh, have been challenged by the studies that I have put before you. Uh, and just so you know that I haven't selected those studies to prove my point. Those are the only studies that have been conducted. Remember, there are only 11 studies for adolescents with eating disorders, so I'm not, I'm not picking, cherry-picking here the ones that uh, uh, I, I like the findings. Um, so, but it brings me to the third leg of the treatment for adolescents with eating disorders, and this is the most common one and referred to psychosocial treatments on an outpatient basis. There are probably two, maybe more, but probably only two uh, treatments that have received some uh, data or evidence to support their efficacy. Uh, and these treatments are, you heard me talk a little bit about that already, family-based treatment which is family-focused and aims at symptom management by the parents early on in treatment. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in the, in the next a few slides. The second is more traditional psychotherapy for an adolescent with an eating disorder, adolescent-focused therapy, which is an individual therapy that aims to promote self-efficacy, self-esteem, and self-management of the eating problems by the adolescent. So very different treatments. The one... Uh, utilizing the parents' capacity to help and support their adolescent, and the second one, very traditional in that one-on-one -on -one treatment, and you help the adolescent to try and, and uh, figure out a way uh, how he or she can muster the skills to battle this, this, this terrible illness. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what we know about outpatient psychosocial <coughs> treatment for adolescents with anorexia nervosa. You remember one of the earliest slides showed that there are only nine published RCTs. What, what, are these, what did these nine studies uh, teach us? That seven of these involved uh, families in, in treatment in one form or another. Uh, that in only three of these nine studies, uh, the family treatment was compared to another individual psychotherapy. Three of them involved inpatient treatments of one form or another. And I, I, I highlighted all three of those studies already for you in the, in the prior section of this presentation. None of them tested the effectiveness of medication for this patient population. Uh, a terrible um, uh, dearth in the knowledge that we have about how best to treat these adolescents. 
So from these nine studies, there's little that we can really say with a great deal of confidence. Suffice perhaps to make the point that uh, most of the evidence that we do have uh, support the effectiveness of involving families in the care uh, of their adolescents, although comparative efficacy data uh, are still quite limited. But let me tell you a little bit more then about what this uh, family-based treatment looks like. Um, first of all, uh, it puts the parents in charge of weight restoration, uh, which kind of um, upsets a number of people in, in the sense that adolescence is a time of individuation and you have to make your own decisions and get on with your life. Of course, all of us who work with adolescents will agree with that. But nothing gets in the way of that development as effectively, unfortunately, and effectively in inverted commas, as an eating disorder. It really thwarts that, that process uh, uh, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, and what this treatment does is it helps the parents to figure out a way to get that illness out of the way so that that adolescent can get on with adolescent development unencumbered by the eating disorder. So I very much like to think of this as appropriate parental control at a time of crisis. No pediatric oncologist or uh, orthopedic uh, surgeon is going to hesitate to try and find a way to engage the parents very actively in the care of their kids with a diagnosis of, a, of cancer or a fracture. Uh, parents play a pivotal role in just about well, in every disorder. I don't know why in eating disorders we got stuck with this idea that somehow parents uh, are not helpful. And maybe it goes right back to one of my first slides where I said psychiatry has this long history of blaming families and maybe we're still stuck in that idea that for this disorder families really ought not to be involved. So this treatment really turns that that conventional wisdom, if you like, upside down. Um, but that said, this control that we try and engineer for the parents to have initially, that's ultimately relinquished. Once the adolescent is at a, a healthier weight and his or her thinking begins to return to normal, the parents have to step back and allow the 14-year-old or the 16-year-old or 17-year-old to make appropriate healthy decisions as any healthy teenager should. Um, but you cannot expect a, a, a teenager who's 13 who has schizophrenia to just talk themselves out of hearing voices, nor can you expect someone who's severely starved and emaciated to just one day wake up and say, oh, I'm going to start eating again. That's just not realistic to think in those ways. So the second piece of, of what this treatment looks like is that the therapist or the clinician takes a very active stance. So if you have these images of psychotherapy means that you sit quietly and you say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, this is not what a, a, a clinician does uh, in this treatment. You really are actively engaged in mobilizing the parents' anxiety such that they can take effective charge of the refeeding process very much in the same way that the nurses would have in an inpatient setting. And you do that with great deference to the parents. They know their kid best. Don't assume that you think you do. You understand the illness pretty well, I hope, but they know their child far better than you do. Um, and to try and build parental skills means that you really have to defer to them in trying to find ways that are appropriate in their household to bring about weight restoration. But ultimately, this treatment is very respectful of the adolescent, obviously, um, because the idea or the job here is for the parents to take this illness out of the way so that the adolescent's development can go forward unhindered by the eating disorder. 
Um, but because we put the parents in charge first before we kind of get to the adolescent taking charge, uh, this really does uh, turn uh, traditional treatment upside down. So this treatment is typically um, conducted over six to, in a dose of about six to 12 months uh, at about 10 or 20 treatment sessions. And we either work with families conjointly, meaning everyone lives under the same roof would uh, come for treatment, uh, or we work with the adolescent and the parents separately. But the same team, of course, would be working with them uh, in concert. Um, the treatment has three clearly defined phases, and if you think of 20 treatment sessions over six months, then the first 50%, uh, or the first 10 sessions, or 50% of the treatment would be uh, us helping the family to figure out a way to bring about weight restoration. And at this time, I'm certainly happy to talk a little bit more about what does that look like in, in practice. The second phase of treatment, about a handful or a half a dozen or so sessions, uh, aims at putting the control back in the hands of the adolescent in an age-appropriate way. If the, uh, if the patient is 11 years old, then he or she probably is not going to make treatment decisions uh, even when they wait restored. They probably should be eating what their parents are putting in front of them. If, however, the patient is 16 or 17, then, of course, phase two means uh, that they now need to make these decisions by themselves uh, in healthy ways, monitored still by the parents to make sure that there's no uh, backsliding. And the third and briefest phase of treatment, uh, once the eating disorder is largely out of the way, is a discussion of how to put the adolescent back on track with adolescent development. So with that in mind, let me walk you through a study that we recently published uh, uh, looking at how does this family-based treatment compare to, to the traditional adolescent focus therapy. So two outpatient treatments for medically stable teenagers with anorexia nervosa. And this was a collaboration between the University of Chicago, where I spent the past 17 years, uh, and my colleagues at Stanford University, as you all know, uh, down the peninsula. Uh, the primary outcome uh, that we were interested in was full remission. Uh, and our definition of what a, a teenager should look like if they are fully remitted from an eating disorder means that they are weight restored, they are at or above 95% of their expected body weight for height and age according to the, to the CDC norms, and their thinking returned to normal as well. And thinking is measured by the eating disorder examination, and that should be within one standard deviation of the community norms. Why did we pick those two? Uh, obviously, weight is important in anyone who has anorexia nervosa, uh, but 95%, why is that important? Because we believe that that's an approximate weight that's needed for a return to full physical health uh, in, in adolescence, meaning that the growth uh, this is the weight that's required for growth, for bone health, and for uh, hormonal, healthy or normal hormonal function. Um, and why is the thinking so important? Because you see a large number of patients who are weight restored, but their parents will tell you they think just the way they did the day when they weighed next to nothing. And that's a very uh, unfortunate place to be in because if the parents were to step back, those thoughts are so potent or so powerful that, of course, it will support the adolescent to, to re-embark or re-engage in, in uh, starvation. So we want to see someone who is weight restored and whose thinking has returned to normal, and that's why we include a measure of healthy thinking to determine uh, full remission. 
So with that definition in mind then, and partial remission, just so you know, it refers to uh, not fully weight restored between 85 and 95% of expected body weight. So significant weight improvements on average, but not uh, full weight restoration. But I'm just going to talk here about full remission, someone who's truly remitted uh, at the end of treatment. And at the end of treatment, the orange, this on the left refers to the individual psychotherapy, and on the right to the family treatment. And as you can see, out of the blocks already, only about a quarter of those who received individual therapy were fully remitted at the end of treatment. And more than 40% of those uh, who received family intervention were fully remitted. That difference was not statistically significant. It was, however, at six months follow-up that uh, those who received individual psychotherapy, only 16% were now fully remitted, whereas still over 40% of those whose parents did the job were still fully remitted. And if you look at the 12-month follow-up, um, then about just less than a quarter of those who received individual treatment were fully remitted, but almost half of those whose families did the job uh, were still fully remitted. So clearly, on average, as you can see here, about 20%, I'd say, across the three time periods of those who received individual treatment were fully remitted versus about 45% on average, 43% uh, of those whose families uh, did the job. Likewise, if you look at relapse, of those who were fully remitted at the end of treatment, only 10% of those who received family treatment relapsed at 12-month follow-up. If you were remitted at the end of treatment, but you were in individual treatment, then at 12-month follow-up, almost half of those were no longer remitted. So unfortunately, the, the durability, if you like, of the treatment is not that great if you received individual therapy, but you really stay well if you received uh, family-based treatment, uh, looking at the end of treatment to the 12-month follow-up mark. So what is the tempo of weight gain? And this is uh, a survival curve that looks at um, everyone at the start of treatment were below 95% of expected body weight by definition, otherwise they wouldn't be in the study for adolescents with anorexia nervosa. And what a survival curve does, it, it, it looks at the time it takes to meet this goal of getting yourself above 95% of expected body weight. And the broken line are those in family-based treatment, and the solid line are those in adolescent focus therapy. And so what this slide clearly tells us that is that if you receive family therapy, after three months of treatment, after six months of treatment, after 12 months of treatment, and then six-month follow-up and 12-month follow-up, if you receive family therapy, you gained weight a lot quicker, and it, that treatment added more adolescents more steadily to this bar of 95% of expected body weight compared to those in the individual psychotherapy. So if you received an individual treatment, you didn't gain weight nearly as fast and consistently as you did if you were to receive the family-based treatment. We're also interested in not just the tempo of weight gain, but as in other psychiatric disorders, if you respond very quickly to treatment, then you're probably going to respond 
well by the end of that treatment. So early treatment response predicts how you're going to do at the end of treatment. And we saw this clinically, but we wanted to put that to the test here as well. And so we conducted two studies with about 180 adolescents with anorexia nervosa. And what we've learned from both of these studies was that the magic number is about four pounds. And this is, I'm not a statistical expert, but my statistical colleagues will tell me that you could put a lot of faith in this, this number. What it does is it looks at the number of uh, pounds you gain from session one to session two, session two to session three, three to four, four to five, and so on. At what point does that weight gain best predict what's going to happen at the end of treatment, early weight gain, and what's going to happen at the end of treatment? And so it very neatly tells us as clinicians that if you gain more, at least four pounds in outpatient treatment by the fourth week of treatment, then we can, with about 80% accuracy, predict that you're going to respond to this treatment by the end of treatment. So we can very early on tell that you're going to be a good responder. And we can sadly, but likewise with a fair degree of certainty, also predict that 70% in this case, if you don't gain that much weight that early on, then you're probably going to struggle to meet the goal by the end of treatment. So it's both a helpful clinical indicator, but it's also potentially a worrying one that um, I, I, I don't want you to take away the message that, oh, well, it's a lost cause if you don't gain four pounds by week four. There are certainly many families who pick it up somehow, post that magic fourth week and four pounds weight gain. So don't give up if that happens. But at least if it does happen, then you're off to a good start. What it tells us as clinicians is that we really have to work very hard early on in treatment to give every family the best opportunity to benefit uh, uh, from this treatment. And this, by the way, cuts across um, family-based treatment and adolescent focus therapy. Although family-based treatment is helping the parents to focus very acutely on weight gain and the adolescent focus therapy perhaps not to the same degree, in both treatments, if you gain about four pounds by week four, you stand a very good chance to be recovered by the end of the treatment. But as clinicians, we're also interested in how much weight you need to gain to uh, regain menses, which often would be uh, lost due to starvation uh, in, in, of course, our female patients. Um, and it's a very important clinical marker of return to health. Uh, if you uh, if, you are, uh, if you have primary amenorrhea, it means that you've never had your first period, you develop an eating disorder, you need to have your first period before you physically recover, if it's age-appropriate to have had uh, um, your first period. Um, in someone who has secondary amenorrhea, it means that they've started their period before the illness onset, they lost a lot of weight, then they lost their period. The goal is to regain menses and to manage a healthy, regular menses um, following weight gain. So these are very important clinical markers that we are looking at when we are looking at physiological recovery in our patients. It's often not clear how much weight needs to be gained. And so we look, looked at 84 consecutive referrals of um, uh, ad female adolescents with secondary amenorrhea. In other words, we knew that they had a period before uh, and they now have to get a period back again. How much weight does that take? Uh, so if our patients on average start treatment at around 80% of expected body weight, then 
what happened was it was not until they reached about 95% of expected body weight on average. There are those who regain their menses earlier, and there are those who regain their menses beyond 95% of expected body weight, but the mean marker was 95% of what you ought to be. And all of these patients received family-based treatment. So where can you expect this to happen? Uh, if you have a dose of 20 family-based treatment sessions, it usually happens around two-thirds of the way into treatment. In other words, you're in phase two. Weight has been <clears throat> largely restored, or it's above 90%. You now begin to hand control back to the adolescent. That's when you can expect uh, menses to return. So again, a helpful marker for us clinically. What about hospital days? And I'm kind of going full circle now because I showed you many studies that talk about how much time should you really spend uh, in the hospital. This study that I just showed you that was the uh, comparison of family-based treatment and individual treatment between uh, Chicago and Stanford. Um, if you received family-based treatment in the 12 months of outpatient treatment, 15% of patients had to be admitted at some point in time during that 12 months because they became medically unstable. That was significantly less than the 37% of those who received individual psychotherapy who required a stint in the inpatient setting because they became medically unstable. And that was statistically uh, significant. So that said, uh, with all the studies that I've shown you now and the valuable role that parents play uh, in helping their kids with anorexia nervosa, there are at least two centers outside the United States, both in Australia, that have implemented uh, a family-based treatment approach to complement their medical stabilization treatment that they provide uh, their teenagers with uh, eating disorders, both at Westmead Children's Hospital and at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, where I have uh, been working um, uh, collaboratively on the study for the past uh, five or six years now. Both of these centers have showed that since they uh, bolstered the involvement of the parents on the outpatient basis uh, after brief inpatient stays for medical, sta medical stabilization, they have significantly decreased uh, not only their admission rates but also their readmission rates. And you can go and read both of those uh, papers if you're interested in the, the detail. And I know that you can't tell from that reference where to find it, but by all means, um, um, you can email me uh, at, uh, I'll give you my email address at the end of this presentation. Um, and for those of you who uh, want to pass this information on to a pediatrician or who might be a pediatrician, uh, there's a nice paper that we published in the Journal of Adolescent Health uh, in uh, October of last year that specifically spells out the role of the pediatrician uh, in uh, managing uh, the treatment when you are focusing more on empowering the parents rather than relying on the medical experts to uh, provide the crucial outpatient services. And I'm, I'm beginning to draw to a close here, but let me just talk a little bit about the effectiveness uh, of a specialist family-focused community-based program for adolescents with anorexia nervosa. So I've given you a lot of data of randomized controlled studies. How does that translate to uh, the work uh, of a specialist team uh, that involves the parents 
very closely uh, in the clinical work that they do. And this is uh, going back to London, Yvonne Eisler's group at the Maudsley Hospital, which um, really underscores, and this is where the family-based treatment approach really started, uh, the value of involving parents, if you coach them, how to manage this disorder. So their treatment program uh, is highly focused on supporting families to figure out a way to support their teenager. So in 231 consecutive referrals, uh, all participating in this outpatient program where parents play a very critical role in figuring out how best to help their child. More than three-quarters of, of adolescents were treated as outpatients only. So they didn't need to spend any time in the hospital. If the illness is identified early enough and the parents are involved in supporting and, and helping their kids through the struggle, then the bulk of them can stay out of the hospital. Only another 14% participated in the outpatient program uh, as, and the intensive outpatient program, so a step up from the blue line. But still, all these kids, which is 90%, stayed out of the hospital. Only 6% spent some time uh, in a psychiatric uh, admission, uh, and uh, only 3% uh, had a medical admission and some outpatient treatment. So obviously, a small number, 10%, spent some time in an inpatient setting. That tells us that if you look at outcome, um, that almost 70% of these patients participating predominantly in an outpatient program could be discharged back to their pediatrician uh, for ongoing follow-up as you would you know, have your kid be seen by a pediatrician once a year. Um, another 14% were discharged to their camp services or for follow-up with a mental health provider because of a comorbidity. Uh, another 11% were transferred to adult services. In other words, they had an ongoing eating disorder, and about 7% declined or dropped out of treatment, which had these investigators conclude that more than 80% of the teenagers who presented or participated in their program required no further treatment for an eating disorder once they completed this primarily outpatient program for eating disorders. So a very upbeat message from a... Uh, real world, if you like, experience of what does treatment look like if we focus uh, almost exclusively on the capacity of parents to take care of their children. So that's, that's the story, if you like, for anorexia nervosa in terms of what we know uh, uh, in terms of treatment for uh, kids who starve themselves. Let me just briefly, in just one or two slides, turn to outpatient psychosocial treatments for teenagers with bulimia nervosa. You may recall in one of those earlier slides, there are only two published randomized controlled studies. Um, and this one we did at Chicago uh, and published in 2007. Uh, 80 adolescents were randomized to either family-based treatment for bulimia nervosa or outpatient supportive psychotherapy on an individual basis. Again, treatment as usual. And what this uh, study showed us was that at the end of six-month treatment, um, there were significantly more patients uh, remitted, and by remission here I mean no binging and purging for four weeks prior to the admission, to the assessment. About 50%, 40% of those who received family-based treatment versus only about 18% of those in the individual psychotherapy. 
Um, and that difference was statistically significant. And it was likewise significant at six-month follow-up, albeit going in the wrong direction. We would have hoped that you know, more and more people would have been added to both groups, but sadly, both groups declined. But still, you stayed better longer if, you, if your parents were involved as opposed to you receiving individual psychotherapy. And so we concluded that family-based treatment showed a clinical and statistical advantage over the individual treatment at both post-treatment and six-month follow-up. Now, as a clinician and as a researcher, we have to be very cautious here because that's only one study with a modest sample size. The other study was conducted at the Maudsley in London by Ulrika Schmidt and her colleagues that randomized 85 adolescents to either family therapy or CBT-guided self-help. And what they've learned was pretty much the same, what they showed was pretty much the same that we showed in Chicago was that at the end of treatment, uh, about uh, 20% were recovered, and at six-month follow-up, about 40%, but they showed no differences between these two treatments, other than that the individual treatment was a bit more cost-effective. Um, so that was, that was their conclusion. So we don't really, as clinicians or researchers for that matter, know much about the treatment of adolescents with bulimia nervosa. We know quite a bit more, relatively speaking, uh, f when it comes to an adolescent who starves him or herself than, ones who, than one who overeats and, uh, and compensates through self-induced vomiting and so on. So we have a long way to go uh, to tell us more about the treatment of teenagers who have bulimia nervosa. But let me summarize the treatment part then. Um, I've tried to demonstrate to you that inpatient treatment for medical stabilization should be brief uh, with a rapid refeeding regimen. The second point, and this is those three studies that, that involve psychiatric admissions, show that first-line inpatient psychiatric treatment does not provide advantages over patient, outpatient uh, management. So we really have to be careful uh, before considering a long psychiatric admission. In many instances, it's very important, very helpful, and necessary, but perhaps not at such frequency as um, many of us uh, like to believe. Um, and then the third leg is that outpatient psychotherapy, uh, the one treatment that has shown uh, to be most effective is involving families or family-based treatment. Uh, and I say this very cautiously in the absence of much data to support other treatments, that this perhaps should be the first-line outpatient treatment uh, for now uh, for adolescents who are medically fit to be seen as outpatients. When it comes to bulimia nervosa, we really do not know that much, as I have already indicated. Um, but what we do know is that the majority of adolescents with bulimia nervosa can and should be treated as outpatients. Um, but that we do not have any treatment with proven efficacy. Suffice to say that it probably is helpful, uh, as is the case in AN, to involve the parents. Uh, incidentally, we are now at the tail end of a uh, large multi-site study, again, between Chicago uh, and Stanford, uh, looking at adolescents with bulimia nervosa. So stay tuned for those findings that we hope that we would be able to publish fairly soon. And you may recall in one of my summary slides, I indicated that zero of the nine studies that have been published for anorexia nervosa and for bulimia nervosa, for that matter, uh, has uh, investigated the role of medication for, for these patients. 
So bringing all of this together, what are the take-home messages that I uh, am trying to put forward here? First, that eating disorders are not rare disorders, but that they are highly prevalent and that they are associated with uh, severe other psychiatric disorders, uh, severe role impairment, and high rates of suicidality. That these disorders are life-threatening. I showed you the recent studies indicating the uh, increased mortality rates across uh, the eating disorder diagnoses, and obviously, therefore, require our urgent attention. That they are helpful, despite my pessimism, that they are helpful treatments, uh, provided that we involve parents, and I'm not advocating one particular way of involving parents, but I do not think parents should be on the sideline, uh, and that we as providers and, and parents act quickly. The sooner we can recognize these disorders and the sooner we respond to them, uh, the better the chances for the adolescent uh, to, to recover. In anorexia nervosa, treatment should always aim at full weight restoration. No oncologist would be happy if the tumor was this big and it is now this big. They would like to see the tumor gone. So you don't want to see someone being at low weight and, okay, at least they've gained 10 pounds when they should have gained 20 pounds. You really need to bring your patient towards full restoration to give them both uh, the best chance for both physiological and psychological recovery. And in bulimia nervosa, the aim should be to completely stop binging and purging. We often hear uh, reports in the literature that said uh, a good outcome means there's an 80% reduction in binge eating and purging. So if someone binged three times a day, now they binge once every second day, is that good? It's better than they were than when they presented, but they are still engaging in behaviors that have dire consequences. So with that, I will conclude. And as I said, I believe you do have a handout that will give you access to uh, these uh, uh, helpful manuscripts. If there's anyone uh, in the audience who particularly is interested in a parent-focused publication, I'd be happy to give you that information. Uh, and if you need to reach out to me for that information or any of the other pieces of the slides that you need some clarification on, you're welcome to email me at daniel.lagrange at ucsf.edu. Uh, so we have a couple of minutes for questions uh, and or clarification, so over to you guys. The question is, uh, what do we do with the 50% patients who are not fully remitted uh, in family-based treatment or the other treatment for that matter as well? That's a very good and uh, difficult question because uh, we know so little about uh, treatment, um, but that said, um, we we are very keen to do a lot better than 50%. Of course, and in a perfect world, everyone would be remitted. Um, so we have several studies now that are looking at ways in which we can improve on the current format of family-based treatment. Another collaboration between uh, Chicago and Stanford is what we call adaptive FBT. So we have added some key components that we believe will, will heighten or improve the, the potency of FBT uh, 
excuse me, early on. And so we did a small RCT. We don't have the findings yet to see whether it makes a difference. So we are keenly uh, exploring avenues to see whether we can adjust or adapt FPT. In another study that we're doing in Chicago, we are adding some components from another psychotherapy uh, to FPT very early on to help parents with things like uh, mood regulation or poor mood regulation in their adolescent, uh, giving them coping strategies when it's very difficult for them to tolerate the distress that treatment evokes in their adolescent. So again, adding key components early on to see whether it can improve the efficacy of, of the treatment. Uh, and then there are other uh, studies that uh, uh, are ongoing elsewhere to figure out ways to improve uh, this one treatment that we know works well. But that said, I think our field also has an urgent need to compare other treatments that have not been explored yet for this patient population. There may be another treatment out there that, that takes great care of the other 50%. We just haven't uh, put that treatment uh, compare that treatment to family-based treatment because we have to, you know, conduct another large RCT and these are um, uh, complex and expensive studies to, to launch. So our field is, I, I'm sounding a bit apologetic now, or defensive. We have a lot more to do. So we are, we are trying to improve on FPT as we know, but the other big gap is that we need to explore other treatments that perhaps are quite effective for adults with AN but we haven't tested them for adolescents with AN, such as uh, cognitive behavior psychotherapy, for instance. Now, that's a great question. Um, the short answer is we don't know, but I won't leave it at that. I'll at least try and, uh, and uh, give you my thoughts. Um, uh, as I tried to indicate in the earlier slides, to develop an eating disorder is never simple. Um, it's, it's like a complex, no pun intended, cake recipe that it, it requires a number of ingredients, culture being one of them, uh, and these ingredients have to be entered in a specific dose and in a specific order to bring about the specific cake, in this instance, the specific disorder. Uh, there are millions of young girls and boys in this culture that diet as we speak. A fraction of them develop anorexia nervosa. So clearly dieting by itself in a culture that strongly subscribes to dieting is not sufficient. Uh, but you can't deny the cultural piece either because why do we see uh, eating disorders to be so prevalent uh, in uh, uh, Western industrialized countries versus other parts of the world? That said, we're now beginning to see larger numbers of adolescents in these previously protected societies present with eating disorders as well. So there are some cultural shifts that might play a role in those societies. But it really is just one piece of the puzzle. Um, Personally, uh, from the way I understand the data and the way I understand uh, our patients, um, uh, they clearly are, as to use your words, uh, how do you put it, uh, forces, uh, sub subliminal forces that, that probably play a role. But I think we are learning a lot more about the biology of, of eating disorders uh, and the neurobiology in particular that uh, begins to have me feel more convinced that this is mostly a brain disorder. Um, and it certainly presents uh, with uh, clear psychiatric or behavioral features. Um, but I think we would probably be barking up the wrong tree if we're looking at a purely psychological or cultural explanation for why these disorders come about. 
So the question is, are there any medications that target the, the eating disorder per se, or are there medications that are being used uh, primarily for the comorbid disorders? You've kind of answered your own question. Uh, the, so there are no RCTs looking at medications for the eating disorder. Um, so we, we have no medication that can be prescribed to address anorexia or bulimia nervosa. That said, um, a good third to 50%, depending on the community that teens receive treatment in, would, uh, have, uh, would be on a psychotropic medication but for comorbidity. So usually for a comorbid anxiety disorder or a comorbid mood disorder. So there's no medication, unfortunately, that we know would reverse anorexia. If there are no further questions, uh, I thank you very much for your attention and for the great questions that you've asked, and uh, have a good evening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.